Theological Seminary. And you might guess it's in Dallas, Texas. And uh, they're a large, influential seminary. And he is a senior professor of Old, Te- Old Testament. Uh, one of the reasons he's here is, is not only that, but before that, he taught in a smaller school in Maryland called Capital Bible Seminary. And that's where I, I was a student. That I graduated from Capital. Uh, I finished there in 1983. And he was my favorite Greek professor at that time. Uh, so he's a man of the languages of the Bible. Uh, he's studied them in his entire life. He loves the Word and very practical teacher. And so the idea of a, a conference is, uh, I don't know about you, but I love going to conferences. And uh, as a pastor, I get to go to a conference usually every year. And it's really an intense time of exposure to the Word of God, to teaching, and to people I don't normally hear. And the Lord often uses that in a special way to impact us when we hear someone we're not used to hearing, concentrating on the Word of God, a a nice, healthy dose of teaching and application and challenge. Uh, So that is the idea of the Monterey Bible Conference. We want to bless our church and also offer it to our community. So Dr. Taylor, please. Thanks, Nate. Well, good morning again, Monterey. Diane and I are very, very pleased uh, to be with you here. We live in a state uh, where the land is very, very flat and where the trees are very, very small. And you live in a state uh, where there's a lot of geographical variety and where we're seeing real trees once again. And it's just a delight uh, to be here. It's such a privilege to catch up with your pastor, Nate, again after many, many years. And uh, thank you so much for the invitation to come and be with you. Now, many of you were here last hour. Some were not. And so let me remind you of what we uh, talked about in the last uh, session. We're looking at the book of Jonah these days, and uh, four chapters in the book of Jonah, so four sessions that we have together. And as we thought about chapter one of the book of Jonah last hour, we were thinking about a servant of God who was living in disobedience to the call and commission of God on his life. You recall that the Lord had come to Jonah and had said to him, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the proclamation that I'm going to give to you. Now, Nineveh is about 500, maybe 550 miles to the northeast of where Jonah was at that time in Israel. And instead of heading off in that direction, by the way, it would have probably taken him a good month to get there in the travel Uh, possibilities that were available to him. Instead of doing that, he heads down to Joppa on the Mediterranean coast, just south of modern Tel Aviv, and catches a boat going to Tarshish, a city that we think is over in western Spain. So he's doing more or less the opposite of what God called him to do. Now, you are very nice people here this morning. I'm sure that thought has never occurred to you, to do more or less the opposite of what God is asking you to do. But here's a prophet 
a servant of God in the Old Testament who consciously rebels against what God wants him to do. He knows that God wants him to go to Nineveh in the east, and instead he heads to Tarshish in the west. He's a servant of God in disobedience to God. Now the Lord does some remarkable things to capture Jonah's attention. He sends a great storm on the sea, and uh, sailors fear for their life, while Jonah, in a fit of depression, is able to sleep below decks until finally he's aroused and admits to what he has done and uh, is thrown overboard by the sailors into the Mediterranean Sea. From their point of view, that would seem to be the end of it. Because cast over into the Mediterranean, in the middle of this life-threatening storm, from their point of view, what happens next to Jonah is that he drowns in the sea. And so it's over as far as they're concerned, and the sea becomes calm, and they head back to dry land thinking, assuming, believing that Jonah is no doubt dead. But one thing that is remarkable about God's dealings with his people, we've all experienced it, is that when we are in flight from God, God never ceases to pursue us and to come after us. And so this is one of the great lessons of the book of Jonah, that uh, advance me if you would back there to chapter 2, where we've defaulted back to chapter 1. Sorry about that. Uh, So God pursues people. Haven't you experienced this in your life? In a time of disobedience, maybe even conscious rebellion against God, God does not give up on us. He pursues us and comes after us and seeks us. Now, when I was a university undergraduate, uh, one of the things I studied was literature. And back in those days, I was introduced to a very remarkable poem that was uh, written by a man by the name of Francis Thompson at the end of the 19th century. Francis Thompson was a person who was in flight from God. He became an addict of opium and basically ruined his youth and wrecked his life and eventually wound up in um, misery and poverty in England, living on the streets for a time as a beggar. And uh, in his 30s, he reflected back on his running from God and how he had uh, not responded to God's grace in his life. And he wrote a remarkable poem. It's called The Hound of Heaven. And the backdrop of this poem um, is the British practice of uh, hunting foxes using dogs so that the hunters could find them and catch them. And it may sound like a surprising metaphor to you, but Francis Thompson thought of that as a way of describing God's pursuit of him. And he wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. He did not mean it to be disrespectful in any way, but he pictured God in pursuit of him, sort of like these hounds would be in pursuit of a fox in a chase. And he wrote this remarkable poem, The Hound of Heaven. It's a long poem. It has 182 lines. I'm going to read just a few of them, the beginning of this poem, 
because it reminds me of the Jonah experience. Listen to Francis Thompson as he uh, reflects on his own life of disobedience to God. And here's what he says. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up this day hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmid fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. And Thompson went on then for a very lengthy remainder of that poem to describe how in his metaphor the hound of heaven had persisted in pursuit of this wayward person trying to arrest his attention, trying to capture uh, the focus of his life uh, once again. This is something of what Jonah experienced. In flight from God, the hound of heaven, as it were, is on his trail, pursuing him, coming after him, trying to capture him and to bring him back. It's a wonderful thought that when even we flee from God, He does not give up on us, but remains in pursuit of us, ever showing grace and mercy, forgiveness, compassion, and love, and reaching out after us. Have you not experienced this at some point in your own life? And so we find Jonah cast overboard from this ship, assumed by the sailors to be dead, having drowned in the sea, and yet at this very moment the Lord does something to intervene in a very unusual way. We pick up our story now in chapter 1 and verse 17 of Jonah. I really think our chapter division here is not made in the best of places. I think the break comes at verse 17, not at the end of the chapter. So uh, in verse uh, 17 and reading down through 2 verse 1, here's what we have. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And so what we're going to have here is Jonah's response to God's deliverance. In the book of Jonah, uh, there are four things that are prepared or appointed. The same word is used of all four of these things. And this is the first of the four things. The Lord appointed, or as this translation says, the Lord prepared a great fish. That's number one. Later in chapter 4 and verse 6, we'll see the same word used of a gourd that the Lord uh, 
prepares. And in chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord prepares a worm. And in chapter 4, verse 8, the Lord prepares a east wind. In turn, we will look at all four of those things as we move along. But this is the first of them, the same word used, uh, creating a thematic thread that kind of ties these things together in terms of God's unusual activity in the life of Jonah. Number one, he prepares or provides or appoints a huge fish. Was it a whale? Was it some type of huge fish? I don't know. Uh, The King James Version has the word whale, actually, in the book of Jonah. More likely, it's a large fish of some sort. Uh, Whether it's a whale specifically or not, we don't really know. Now, uh, there's a very interesting thing going on in our text here at this point that's not clear in a translation. Uh, I want to teach you a Hebrew word this morning. Are you ready for that? Would you like to learn a Hebrew word this morning? The word that's used for fish in uh, Jonah chapter 1 is the word dog. Dog, D-A-G, dog. And so it says the Lord prepared a great dog. Now, I thought about having a little bit of fun with a sermon topic and and saying that Jonah was not swallowed by a great fish, but he was swallowed by a big dog. In Hebrew, the word for fish is dog. So he was swallowed by a dog, so to speak. But... uh, So we have a reference to a large fish, a dog gadol in Hebrew. And then it says later that uh, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed. That's in chapter 2, verse 1. Interestingly, the word changes there to a feminine gender. Dog is a masculine fish. In 2.1, we get the word daga. That's a feminine fish. Later in chapter or in verse 10 of chapter 2, we'll be back to the masculine form, dog. Interesting variation there. I think in my own mind, there's not much to be made of it, that sometimes words just fluctuate a bit in gender with no particular significance. The ancient rabbis, however, always noticed this kind of thing, and sometimes they created fanciful, very interesting stories to go along with it. And so in ancient uh, Jewish thought, there was a belief that in the story of Jonah, there was not one fish, but there were two fish. One was a male fish that was larger, and uh, when, when it swallowed Jonah, uh, he was comfortable and had plenty of room, and it was a spacious place to be. And Jonah did not pray from inside the dog, the male fish, But later in chapter 2, verse 1, from inside the daga, the female fish, smaller in size, and in Jewish uh, belief, a pregnant fish that simply added to the discomfort that the swallowed Jonah felt, and now he's very uncomfortable and finally is led to pray. A very interesting story. We see it uh, reflected in uh, Jewish thinking from time to time. And uh, here's a book that I noticed recently with the title, Jonah and the Two Great Fish. Did you know there were two great fish? And you can see in the lower right, one of those fish is bigger than the other, and it is uh, releasing Jonah into the mouth of the smaller fish. And uh, so in Jewish thinking, this was all based on this gender variation 
that we see with the word for fish. Uh, uh, and I was with a rabbinic student in Jerusalem one time, and he was selling pictures. And in his picture, he had in the water of the bo- beside the boat two fish. Obviously, it was the story of Jonah. I said, why do you have two fish there? Isn't there just one in the book of Jonah? He said, you know, I've never thought about that. And so I was able to share with him this rabbinic story about uh, the two fish in the book of Jonah. I don't think that's uh, correct, but it's something you'll see from time to time in the story uh, uh, as people tell the story of the book of Jonah. So uh, finally, at any rate, Jonah was led to pray. Folks, why is it that it sometimes takes tremendous stress, difficulty, enormous problem in our life to lead us to pray? Why aren't we more eager to seek God's face uh, for the details of our life? So often uh, it takes uh, enormous problem and great difficulty for us to come to God in prayer and to seek his face for the dilemmas that we face. And this was true of Jonah. Why does it take him so long to come to a posture of prayer? Do you remember in chapter 1 that there are folks praying back in chapter 1, but it's not Jonah. Who's praying back in chapter 1? The pagans are praying. Each to his own God, we're told. The sailors prayed each to his own God, multiple deities. And uh, this reluctant prophet uh, does not pray until finally at this emergency hour, we we see him finally coming to God in, in prayer. And, uh, and so what he prays here um, is a thanksgiving song. Uh, he prays and God answers by providing deliverance. Now I want to ask you something. When you think about the book of Jonah, how do you think about the fish? Uh, it would be possible to think being swallowed by a fish would be a pretty awful thing. Would you like to be swallowed by a fish? I don't think I want to be swallowed by a fish. <laughs> it's not a particularly pleasant thought, even if there's an element of the miraculous involved in it. We sometimes think of the fish as a negative in the story of Jonah. Would you agree with me? Sometimes it's, we think of the fish as a negative in the story of Jonah. The fish is not a negative. The fish is a positive. Because what does the fish represent? The fish represents God's intervention and provision of deliverance. And so the fish is the means of Jonah's salvation. Were there no fish, Jonah would die by drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. And he almost did. We will see that in the song we're about to look at here. He almost dies by drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. And just at the seeming last minute, God sends a vehicle of deliverance, of salvation, And what is that vehicle of deliverance or salvation? It is the fish that swallows Jonah and thereby preserves his life and spares him from death by drowning. So think of the fish as sort of the Lone Ranger element in the story. It comes riding into the last moment and provides a way of escape or a way of uh, deliverance. Now, In your text, do you uh, find that most of chapter 2 is laid out in a way that's a bit different from the rest of the book of Jonah? Do you find more empty space, for example, uh, on the sides of uh, 
what's found in chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. The reason for that is that this is a poem. The rest of the book of Jonah is a narrative, but most of chapter 2 is a poem. You might call it a psalm. Not that different from the psalm that we read together earlier in our service this morning. It's the sort of thing that you could find in the book of Psalms. Um, It's not there, but it's the same type of thing that we find in the Psalter. Uh, Chapter 2, beginning at verse 2 and going through verse uh, 9, those verses are what we call a thanksgiving song. It's a poem that uh, expresses thanksgiving to God for some great um, gift that has been given or some great deliverance that God has provided. And so what we have now is a thanksgiving song. Jonah is going to express in a poem, in a psalm, you might say, how it was that God delivered him from death by drowning in the sea. Now, did he do this while in the fish? I don't think of uh, uh, being in a fish as a good place to reflect on poetry and to write contemplative discourses like this. Uh, I doubt if someone swallowed by a fish is sitting there with pen and ink composing a psalm or a poem. (laughs) So this is probably something that was written later as Jonah reflected back on his experience and looked back on these things that had happened and put it into a poetic form, what it was that God had done for him. And then it becomes part of the uh, book of Jonah. By the way, we don't know who wrote the book of Jonah. It's not necessarily Jonah himself that wrote this book. It doesn't look to me like he did. It's told in the third person. So I think it's someone later recounting the story of Jonah and including this poem that presumably Jonah wrote at a later time as he reflected on God's deliverance of him. And so let's look at this poem that begins by describing the life-threatening problem that Jonah was experiencing. That's in verses 2 through 6. Verses 2 through 6. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple." The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, my God, brought up my life from the pit. Now, this is a poem describing the experience, as Jonah later reflects on it, of what it was like to be cast overboard from this ship and to be sinking in the waters of the stormy Mediterranean Sea. He's going down in the water. His life is all but gone from him. And in very vivid terms, he describes what it was like to seemingly be entering into the realm of the dead and to, 
as it were, watch its bars close behind him forever. He uses that metaphor as a way of describing the finality of the experience that he currently is in. He is in the process of dying. That's his perception. He is dying, and he's about to leave this world and enter the next, and the bars of that world of Sheol will close behind him uh, forever. And it's just at that very moment when he feels that all help is gone, everything is lost, uh, his life is over, that the fish swallows Jonah. God's vehicle of salvation and deliverance comes at that very moment and takes Jonah, sparing him from death uh, by drowning in the sea. And so following verses 2 through 6 that describe this life-threatening problem that Jonah is in, verse 7 gives an unexpected answer. And the unexpected answer is this. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now, I can't tell you why it took Jonah so long to come to this point. Why did it have to be that not until his life was ebbing away and almost gone, that finally he remembers God, not just in the sense of recollecting information about God, but remembering the Lord in the sense of doing something proper in light of his past behavior of running from God. I remembered you, Lord. My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Um, We are so often an obstinate people. We so frequently uh, turn from the Lord and only at the last minute, seemingly, respond to God's grace. Why is that? Why do I find that in my own life? Why do you find that at times in your life? Why did Jonah uh, do this? Why not respond sooner uh, to God? And so an unexpected answer comes in verse 7. And in light of that, uh, in the final part of the psalm, Uh, Jonah expresses a vow of praise. And a vow of praise is something that was often done in Old Testament settings. When God responded to prayer in the Old Testament setting, uh, usually there was a vow that the person would make that basically said something like this, Lord, you have answered my prayer, and here's what I'm going to do. I vow that I'm going to publicly acknowledge your goodness to me and make a sacrifice that memorializes what has happened. That's what we call a vow of praise. And uh, here at the end of this psalm, we have a vow of praise. He begins by saying, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them. Uh, A rather difficult verse. To whom is he referring here? Those who cling to worthless idols. I suppose the sailors. Now they had made some overture toward God and made a sacrifice to God and had actually feared the Lord at the end of chapter 1. But is this verse a hint that whatever it was those sailors did, it was not um, lasting, that it was only temporary in light of the current emergency that they had experienced? Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them. Uh, If the sailors continued to cling to the idols 
each one had prayed to during the storm, then in doing that, they forfeit God's love for them. Uh, But it's a general truth as well, isn't it? Anyone that clings to worthless idols forfeits God's love in, in their behalf. Why do we do this sometimes? Why do we sacrifice Uh, the genuine, life-changing grace of God for worthless idols, things that are not of lasting value. But he says in verse 9, I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you that which I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So here he's touching on Uh, what he intends to do in light of God's goodness to him. He's going to make a sacrifice. Now, the only proper place for that to be done in the Old Testament setting would be at a uh, proper place of worship, the temple, for example, in Jerusalem. Uh, So he's going to do this publicly and bring public witness to bear to what God has done in his behalf. And what I have vowed, he says, I will make good on that And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Now, the salvation he's talking about is what? He's talking about physical deliverance in terms of death uh, by drowning in the sea. God has delivered him, saved him from that awful death by drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. And salvation uh, comes from the Lord. Deliverance comes from the Lord via the fish that God provided to spare uh, Jonah's life. But the idea is true in a broader sense, isn't it? All true deliverance in the spiritual realm comes from the Lord. Salvation comes uh, from the Lord. And you and I don't know one another well just yet, but I'm trusting that you have found this to be true in your personal life that salvation comes from the Lord, that it's not something we gain through our works and through what we do, but we have experienced God's forgiving grace through the merit of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation comes from the Lord. That's where it originates. It's from God's hand, his gracious hand reached out in our behalf. And so in verses 2 through 9, we have this wonderful psalm a thanksgiving psalm in which Jonah expresses his gratitude to God, his willingness to sacrifice, uh, the fulfillment of a vow that he has made, and all sounds well and good, doesn't it? But those who know the story of Jonah know that it's not over just yet. Jonah has made a step in the right direction, but we're going to see him in the next two chapters of this book taking many steps backward. Uh, He's not on right course just yet. This all sounds very good here, and I'm sure he was very grateful for God's deliverance by sending the fish, but Jonah's attitude has not yet been corrected, and his theology has not yet been straightened out, and he has a ways to go, as we shall see in chapters uh, 3 and 4. In verse 10, Jonah returns to dry land. We read, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Uh, Three days and three nights of undigested Jonah was enough for this fish. 
and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. I wonder what he would have looked like at that point. I'll leave to your imagination to sketch out what Jonah would have looked like when the fish vomited him forth. By the way, the Hebrew word that's used for vomited means vomited. That's what it means. And so it's not a very pretty picture uh, if you try to reconstruct what that might have looked like in your own mind. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now presumably it's taken the fish three days and three nights to get from wherever Jonah was when he was thrown overboard back to somewhere in the vicinity of Joppa and Israel uh, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. Uh, for him to get to Nineveh from this location would take him a good month traveling overland. He'd have to go up the Fertile Crescent and come down to Nineveh on the east side of the Tigris River just opposite of Mosul in modern-day Iraq. We're reading a lot about Mosul these days, right? And as I pointed out in the last hour, Mosul is just across the Tigris from the ancient site of Nineveh. So we're in, in the modern news these days, we're thinking of a scene that's pretty close to where Jonah uh, was to go, the site of uh, Nineveh. And so he's got a journey yet to make. It's going to take him a month or so to get over to uh, Nineveh, uh, but we will find him there uh, in chapter 3. Now, what does all of this mean to us in terms of not just a story about Jonah, but are there spiritual lessons that apply to our life from uh, the story that we're reading about here in the book of Jonah? Are there some applications that we might draw for a contemporary setting that might influence how we think about our lives? Well, I think in uh, Jonah chapter 2, uh, one of the messages that we see is that in spite of our failures, God doesn't give up on us. Instead, he makes a way for restoration and renewal. This was true of Jonah. It is true of me. It is true of you. We all stumble and fail and experience failure. Some failures greater than others. But in spite of our failures, God does not give up on us. He's not that kind of God. He's a God of grace and compassion, forgiveness and mercy. And he makes a way for restoration and renewal. Where are you on that continuum? Maybe coming to your mind right now is something that you regard as very dark and dreadful something that you've done that brings shame and embarrassment. In spite of failure, God does not give up. He makes a way for restoration and for renewal. We also learn in Jonah chapter 2 that it's sometimes due to uncommon difficulty and personal stress that we learn to pray fervently. I suppose... This need not be the case. I mean, we should be people of prayer even when times are good. It shouldn't take an emergency in life for us to learn to pray. But the reality is that sometimes it's due to uncommon 
difficulty, personal stress and emergency that we learn to pray fervently. Does God sometimes allow difficulties to come into our life? Perhaps for a reason like that. That through that he can mold us and fashion us in a way that might be difficult to do otherwise. And if you're in the midst of a difficulty of that sort, facing some kind of stressful situation and learning as a result of that to pray fervently and to seek God's face in the midst of it, then it's not all a bad thing. It's not something that is lost on you, but something you can benefit from and profit from. And then Jonah, too, is also stressing for us the fact that God's grace toward us is undeserved. And that should lead us to experience deep gratitude. Let me ask you something. Given what we have read about in the first chapter of the book of Jonah, would you say that Jonah deserved the deliverance, the amazing deliverance that God provided in chapter 2? Did he deserve this? Did this wayward servant of God who was in direct disobedience, almost defying God's will for him, Did he deserve the great fish that God miraculously provided that became a vehicle of deliverance and salvation? Did Jonah deserve this? I don't think he did. But that's one of the wonderful things about grace, isn't it? We don't deserve God's grace. He gives it to us lavishly in spite of our just deserts. But it's rather sad in the story of Jonah that he had not learned this lesson well just yet. Because in chapters 3 and chapter 4, Jonah is going to resent the fact that God could forgive people like the Ninevites. He resents that. He doesn't want it to happen. And why doesn't he want it to happen? He doesn't think they deserve it. They are so bad. They don't deserve God's grace. Jonah, wake up. You don't deserve God's grace. God has dealt graciously with you. Don't begrudge the fact that he deals graciously with the Ninevites and extends forgiveness and deliverance to them. Folks, we can be so selfish on this idea. We accept the idea that God forgives us, but we have a secret list of people we don't think really warrant his forgiveness. And I don't know who might be on that list for you, but are there some people who have done such enormously bad things that they are beyond the reach of God's grace? The Christian message is no. That in spite of what we or anyone else has done, salvation is of the Lord, and he extends that offer of grace and forgiveness freely in spite of what people have done. The Apostle Paul thought of himself as the worst of sinners. And yet God's grace came to him in a wonderfully transforming way, bringing new life and uh, transforming him into somebody totally different from who he was and had been. Let us never begrudge God's grace. God works miracles of grace on the worst of people. Let us never get to a point where we think we somehow deserve God's grace, but they don't. We all are the objects of God's lavish love given to us in the person of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. What a wonderful gospel this is that knows no boundaries and knows no sins that are so great or, so, or bad things that are so bad that they cannot be forgiven. We are all within the reach of God's grace if we respond to the offer that he makes to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't be a Jonah. Don't run from God. Not for service, if you know God is calling you to do something, maybe something you don't particularly want to do, do not run from God for service. And certainly do not run from God's offer of salvation. Uh, If you're here apart from redemption in Christ Jesus, the gospel is so very simple. You, like all of us, have sinned. Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose the third day, And by receiving his offer of forgiveness, you can become a new creature in Christ because of the work that he has done. I trust that each one of you has experienced that wonderful, transforming grace of God through Christ. And if not, today is the day that that should be taken care of. Shall we pray? Lord, when we read this story of Jonah, it's hard not to see ourselves in certain scenes of the story and to realize that the things we have done are not all that different from the things that this wayward servant of yours did. We come this morning to express our profound gratitude for your saving grace, your redeeming goodness given to us in Christ. May each person here know the joy of sins forgiven and the joy of living a life that pleases you and seeks to serve you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us for the closing.